Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through the end of the chapter. The message is entitled, Reasons to Believe. Father, I pray now that you give us understanding of your word, that by your Holy Spirit you would apply it to the hearts of your children, that we might be better equipped, have more wealth in our stewardship, Lord, for ministry, that our hearts might be encouraged, that our souls might be fed. And Lord, I pray that if there are any here that do not know you today as their Savior, they might see your beauty, your value by the Holy Spirit. They might see the danger that's coming in eternity separated from you and that you might draw them to yourself, that today would be the day of their salvation, Lord. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in the beginning of the parables, we see the power of the gospel seed and our opportunity and responsibility to share that seed, not to change it, because the heart is not our responsibility, just the gospel. The soil of the heart is what God prepares, not us. But when you come through the parables, you come down to here and you say, but why would somebody, how does somebody come to Christ? How do you become a part? We see why people don't. But what are some of the reasons that people come to know the Lord and trust him, become part of the kingdom? And he gives us these three parables, these three, one of the hidden treasure, one of the pearl, and of the dragnet. And I think those are the three basic reasons why people come to Christ because without looking for it, the Lord opens their eyes and they see him as a valuable, valuable treasurer. They weren't seeking for him, but he was seeking for them. And second, in the pearl, we see this merchant who's uh, a dealer in, in pearls and he's looking always, always kind of seeking. And then one day he finds that pearl that's perfect. We see the beauty in Christ. And third, the dra- third is the dragnet, that judgment is coming. And that's the third reason why some people wake up and they flee the wrath to come. In Pilgrim's Progress, in the very beginning of the book, Pilgrim is, is weighed down with sin and he's full of fear. And he, he runs out of his village and tries to figure out which way to run, but he doesn't know where to go. And that's when Evangelist shows up and says, I, I see that you're, you're really burdened by something. He says, oh, I just feel like I'm about to be pulled down to hell. And he said, I, I want to run to escape the wrath to come, but I don't know which way to go. An evangelist says, you see, young, wicked gate? See, it's scripture language. Because Jesus said, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Narrow is the way, straight is the gate. You see, wicked gate? No, I don't think I can. He points a little higher. He says, do you see that light? He says, I think I do. He said, you just head toward that light. He had the book of books in his hand already. And the Holy Spirit was working in his heart. But he was driven by that fear is what drove him to find Jesus. And in finding Jesus, he found the value and the beauty also. So we see here, first, the hidden treasure. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Now, some high-minded Christians might think, well, that doesn't seem very honest. Why is the Lord using an illustration like that? Well, first, the point isn't all the things that take place. The point is that he finds this treasure by surprise that he wasn't looking for, and he sells everything he has that he might possess that treasure. But just so your mind is relieved, even rabbinic law said whoever finds a treasure, it belongs to the one who finds it. So he's actually being over and above board and taking the higher road by actually buying the whole field. The reason that the rabbis made that decision of law is because of the way it was in, in Palestine. I mean, they didn't have banks and depositories in those days. And so if you had some wealth and you wanted to keep it safe, then you would look around when nobody's looking and go find a special place, bury it, cover it up. Only you know where it's at. But then that place had wars and different people, moving people in and out. And the person would be moved out maybe by dispersion or maybe by dying. And there's the treasure. Josephus said, the whole land of Israel is one buried treasure. So the rabbis in their discussions of law decided somebody stumbles across a treasure in a field, it's, it belongs to them. So he's actually taking the high road and actually going and buying the piece of land so he can possess the treasure. Now, if the fellow that owned the land buried the treasure, he'd obviously pull the treasure out before he turned the deed over to the land. But again, that is not what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's trying to say that possessing Jesus Christ is worth everything you can give to possess it. I remember one of the first college young people to come to the Lord in that 87, 88 period of time, that year where we saw hundreds of college people give their lives to Christ. One was Matt Miller. Matt was a ranch kid from Big Piney. Came from a very wealthy family. They basically owned Sublette County. His grandfather, during the, during the Depression, where everybody else was going broke, was buying up ranches until they stopped him. So he grew up in a very strong Catholic home. His mother was Roman Catholic. I'm sure she made him go to church when she could make him. Matt's father died when he was about nine years old, so he was raised by his mother and his grandmother, Miller. And he was raised to be a wild young man. He was a good athlete. Played football. He got a scholarship to Snow College. But at some point, when he turned 18 or 21, he got the first settlement <coughs> from his dad's inheritance, which was $80,000, and he found another rich kid. And they spent it in a month on all kinds of drugs and partying and traveling all over the place. And then the money ran out, and his friends left, and he found himself alone in California, the rich cowboy kid from... Pinedale panhandling in the streets of Los Angeles for something to eat. Matt wasn't looking for Christ. It wasn't on, even on his radar, but Jesus was seeking for him. And as he was panhandling outside of Hardee's, the Lord sent a fella. He said, let me buy you a hamburger. I'm going to take you home and feed you a good meal too. And that fellow bought him a hamburger. Matt says, I don't remember his name to this day. I'll see him again in heaven. But took home and fed him. Kind of got him back on his feet. So that Matt was able to make his way home and kind of get sober and fed. He could call his grandma and get a 
a ticket to come home. And he shared the gospel with Matt. Matt didn't get saved at that point, but he never got over that gospel. So he went home and he was still hooked on heroin. So his brother Mike put him on the swather. And so he'd be in the hot sun there in Pinedale, cutting hay, and he'd get so sick and he'd crawl into that swather and think he was going to die, throwing his guts up. And his brother would see him. He'd gone through the same thing. He'd go pour some oranges down his throat, prop him back up in the swather and say, keep going, man. It's the only way to get dry. One of those times of desperation, Matt cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, if you just, you just don't kill me, I promise I'll go to school and I'll go back to church. Now, Matt was thinking where he grew up in the Catholic church. So he thought, well, maybe I just wasn't listening growing up, right? So he came to Laramie and got a good drug-free job at the Buckhorn Bar. And he would do the same thing. He was going to school. His grandma said, I will uh, pay for your school and for an apartment, but I'm not paying for that fancy truck, so you better get a job. And within a month, he lost his fancy truck. So here's a 25-year-old cowboy riding a bike to class with his ropers on. But he thought, well, that's what we got to do. So one night after bartending and Drinking till two or three in the morning, the Lord woke him up and said, hey, you told me you're going back to church. He said, okay. So I went to the Newman Center. He said, they sat me behind a curtain back there. And I was expecting to hear what I thought I missed before, and that was the gospel that fellow shared with me. But I didn't. I heard the same thing that I heard growing up. Do this, do that. He said, that wasn't it. Because he'd gotten a glimpse of the treasure, see. So the next week, the Lord woke him up again after being up party until two or three in the morning. Lord woke up and said, time to go to church, Matt. Said, okay, Lord, I don't know where to go, so I'll just go to the first church I come to. He lived down the end of between 7th and 8th Street, so he got on his bike on Russell and 7th and 8th and rode down 7th Street, and he came to Little Breen Baptist Church, parked his bike and walked in the door. It was the, it was the Sunday that the time changed, so he came early than he expected to. Came for Sunday school. At the time, we had adult Sunday school, and I was teaching what the Word of God says about finances. And he said, wow, I didn't know the Bible talked about money. And he stayed for church, and he said, when I heard you preach the gospel, I knew that's what I saw before. Well, Matt came to church for a while, and then I visited him one day. I said, you know, Matt, we got church at night, too. He says, you do. In those days, we had an evening service. So he started coming to Sunday morning and to Sunday night. And he started to come to a Bible study. After about a month, Matt told me after the Bible study, you know, Paul, I'm getting close, man. I'm getting a lot of things cleaned up in my life, and I'm almost there. I said, Matt, let me tell you the good news. You can't clean yourself up. Jesus wants to take you right where you're at. Well, Matt was kind of discouraged by that a little bit because felt like I knocked his pins out from underneath him because, you know, he'd been working hard at this. I said, no, Matt, Jesus will cleanse you. He was coming to my house a couple days later for, for dinner. He showed up on that Thursday night. I said, Paul, Paul I got to tell you something, man. I went home after Bible study. I knelt down on my bed, and I got a hold of the Lord. And I prayed for probably two hours, and I got peace in my soul. I accepted Christ as my Savior. Matt wasn't looking for the Lord. 
If we'd have seen his life, we'd say, well, he was running as fast as little legs could carry him away from God. But you know, when God sets the hounds of heaven and sends his angels after you, and you get a glimpse of that treasure and he's opened your eyes to it, over and over again, the story is told about somebody finds the value, changed his life, changed his life. We've seen the second generation, his daughter Megan came here and was part of our ministry. He met another, a girl in our church that had come to Christ. I never get over those stories. Why? Because it's about the power of God. I want, in, to, want to encourage you. You may look at your friends and say, well, you know, they're too up and outer. There's no way. They've got everything they, they want. And, you know, you may look at them, but the Bible says you don't see their heart, that God is churning up the soil of their heart. Matt and Lisa are still serving God faithfully today down in Florida. He's an attorney. He's an elder in his church. Then there's the story of the pearl. Forces 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon, find, upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This one's not surprised. This is his whole life. As it were, looking for truth and living in comparison and thinking I understand pearls. I know what I'm, I'm dealing in here. And in his mind, there's this one amazing, perfect pearl that he's seeking. Who put that idea in his mind to be even seeking? Because the Bible says no one seeks for God unless the Spirit draws them, right? We had a young woman about the same time. Her name was Lisa Puffpath. And her testimony was that, you know, life was good. She had an amazing family. A mom and dad were so encouraging to her. She had a full-ride scholarship, track scholarship at the University of Wyoming. She had a great boyfriend, great family. Her brothers and sisters loved her. And then she found Jesus. She, th she thought she had it. She grew up in a really good Catholic home. And they did the right things. But what she was missing was that relationship with Jesus. And oh, the difference that made. People come, <coughs> come to Christ different places in life. So sometimes people come and it's, it's a surprise. They never expected. They weren't even looking for the Lord. And then the Lord reveals that I'm a treasure. And he changes their whole life. Other people are connoisseurs, as it were, of truth and seeking. And they think they've got it all figured out, and then they see Jesus. And nothing compares to the beauty of Jesus Christ and the life of just knowing him as personal Savior. But there's a third motivation. And that is fear. Judgment. Verses 47 through 52. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach. And they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a motivation. 
We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The second verse says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. See, it's only grace that opens a person's eyes to the imminent danger of them living at the edge of, the, of eternity every day. Because James says, what is your life but a vapor that appears for a little time then vanishes away? How quickly things can happen. Our brother Carl Picard was coming home a couple weeks ago on a Friday or Saturday night. And they were first ones upon an accident where there were three fatalities there on Happy Jack Road. Those people that night did not think we're going to go to eternity. And three of them were gone instantly. You don't know what's coming tomorrow. And yet, it's only the Holy Spirit that can open eyes to the danger that a person's in. It was grace that taught our heart to fear. Only grace can open our eyes to that. I have been with people who are near death's door. And you can talk about the cowboys, you can talk about the weather. And as soon as I turn to the Lord, because I want to speak to them about their soul, because the time is ticking away, and they say, oh, pastor, I'm so tired. And my soul aches for them. But it reminds me of what John the Apostle wrote in 1 John 5. He said, the whole world lies in the arms of the wicked one. Literally what that means, he's just rocking them to sleep. He's blinded the eyes of those that perish, lest they might see the glorious light of the gospel and be saved. He says, you're fine. You're okay. No one can know that anyway. You just have to accept what comes. Now, you and I as believers, I have a hard time even thinking about very long what the Bible says about hell right here. Jesus said it's a place of outer darkness. You'll never see light again. It's a place of suffering for eternity. Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, not just the pain, but the idea of regret. You had opportunity. You were there, you heard the message, and you rejected Christ. That's a motivation. The Bible says about unbelievers in Romans when Paul, chapter 3, does kind of an anatomy check of the natural man. I was speaking one day at Cathedral Home. Young, came, young man came up afterwards and gave his life to Christ based on this one verse. It says, under their, under their tongues is the poison of ass. They go away from the womb speaking lies. Their, their feet are swift and running to evil. They hear about something bad happened. They want to get there. But the last one's what got him. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You feel this pressure for your friend, your loved one to say, just trust Christ before it's too late. And they look at you like Job's sons, or like Lot's sons-in-laws, like he's a man out of his mind. Why? Because they're blind. Only God opens the heart to the danger and gives people the faith to flee the wrath to come. That's God. 
but it's part of the message. We ought to be living out and telling the beauty of Jesus, the great value by the decisions we make in our life that he's worth anything he asks for us. And the only people in the world that fear God are his children that love him. We ought to be living that out there. God says something, we actually listen and obey it because we believe the commandments are for our protection. It's amazing that we have these cities full of mega churches and yet the abortion, the rebellion, the devastation of sin goes on. Why? I, I think it's because most believers in America have bought into Satan's lie. Listen, just keep it to yourself. You don't want to bother people with that. That's not politically correct. Just be nice. You hear that in a lot of circles. You know, just go love people, but don't talk about Jesus because that's offensive. That's exactly what Jesus said. <coughs> that the truth of the gospel is an offense. But when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, though it offends them, it's their only hope for life. So what do you want to do? Be nice to people? So they can forever remember in heaven that you were nice, but you never shared the truth with them? Judgment is coming. This dragnet, there are different kinds of fishing in those days. There was, still goes on today. There's fishing with a hook like we do. Some are very good and buy really expensive equipment to go fly fishing, right? And it's an art form. You watch them, it's just an art form. Catch them with a hook. There's also the kind that you see even today in some countries where there's a kind of individual net and these guys throw the net out, but they've got another end, a cord. The net is weighted, it sinks down, and then they pull it in and it, wet, the, it comes together in whatever they pull in. But this is talking about a different kind of drag net that would take a whole team of fishermen and two boats or one boat and some men on the land. And this, this really huge net would be stretched out over the water and if you have people, men on the land, then guys in the boat would bring this big net around and it would pull everything in its way because it's weighted and it's big all the way to the bottom and everything it, it would bring with it. And Jesus is getting across the picture that God's dragnet is coming. Judgment is coming and no one will escape. No one will escape. That's why Jesus in his invitation to the Sermon on the Mount says, many will come to me on that day. And they'll see, Lord, Lord, we've done many wonderful works here, Nate, even cast out demons. And I will say to them, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Not that he didn't know about them, but he did not know them as part of the family because they'd never surrendered, never submitted to the gospel. They kept hooked up on what their church was, what their religion was, and, and, and I think I can make it on my own. But judgment is coming. And no one will escape. Revelation 20, we see the great white throne judgment. And it says, John said, I saw the small and the great stand before that judgment. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the Lamb's book of life. And they were judged out of those books. And all that were not written down in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven because he loved people. And he wanted them to flee the wrath to come. It's not about this church or any other church. It's do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Have you submitted to the gospel? 
see, because Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you to pay for your salvation. But if you say, oh, I believe in the death of Christ, but I also will do my good works. Your good works, the Bible says, are nothing but filthy, leprous rags in his sight. Cast them away and just come to Jesus. We sang about it. Empty-handed, but alive in your hands. Then Jesus says, 51, have you understood all these things? He said, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's like us, isn't it? We get some things down. We think we understand the Lord brings trials and he opens our minds up to those things he taught us. And then we really have them. I think they really got a hold of them after the Holy Spirit came down. They really got a hold of those principles then. He said, good, I'm glad you understand these things. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. What a great picture. That as God builds us and gives us information, the wisdom of the scripture, that we become a steward of his treasury. When you know the word of God, then you're able, when your friend is hurting, you run into somebody that, that needs Real help, you're able to take from the treasure of Scripture that God's given you and put a balm of healing on them to give them hope, to give them strength, to give them the gospel so they have salvation. That's why he's growing us. That's why it's the responsibility of every believer to know the word, to rightly divide the word of truth. Every one of us are stewards you may wonder, why do I have to keep going through the same trial? Maybe because you're having a hard time getting it. I remember Mark Reisowitz in one of our Bible studies, Dr. Reisowitz was saying, I love this part where Jesus looks at his disciples and says, are you still so dull? Don't you feel like that sometimes? You see, if we get the principle, the trial's not a test anymore because you've been there before and now you have the hope that the Lord's going to bring you through the same way, but it's more than that. That scripture knowledge, that treasure of scripture knowledge and wisdom is not just for your benefit. How often are we so self-centered about our trials and our stuff and we wonder why we never grow? It's because you've never gotten to the place that God hasn't called you just to be a leech. He called you to be a steward to share those treasures with those that are around you. He said to the the people in Corinth, it's time for you to stop drinking milk and start eating meat. So you're strengthened to be able to minister to others. That's where the grace is experienced. When you become a channel of blessing, not just a recipient. You know, like the Dead Sea where it just flows in, but it doesn't flow out. And then lastly, Jesus talks about the habitat that we live in. The world is an environment of unbelief and rebellion. He talked about his experience of going back, probably the last time, to his hometown. When Jesus, for 53, had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miracles and powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Names them. Here's your brothers. So he had at least two sisters because they're plural. 
Mary had six other children after she bore Jesus. But that familiarity, instead of thinking, man, he's our guy. He's from Nazareth. They were astonished by his wisdom and his miracles, and they hated him. They hated him. They took offense at him. Isn't that the truth? My question is, what do we expect? What do we expect? They rejected Jesus. They recognized the wisdom of his words. They recognized that he was truly doing miracles, and they rejected him. They rejected him. I think the Lord gives us this, this, this another response of the hometown, just so we understand. It's not about us. Not about us. So clearly the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we preach not ourselves. Not about you. So if you get rejected, take comfort in the fact they rejected Jesus also. It's not about you being accepted and you being liked. It's about getting the gospel out there. So what does it say? A prophet, Jesus said, is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. The world is an environment of unbelief and rebellion. That's why people can understand all the facts about Jesus and reject him in their life. Why? Because there are some claims the gospel have on you. You see, Jesus offers salvation full and free. Salvation's free. But the Christian life will cost you everything. And you know what? He's worth it. He's worth it. John MacArthur points out six things that we can get from, this, from these parables. First of all, it takes a personal decision. Nobody can make that decision for you. It's personal between you and God. There comes a time in every young person's life, even though they've grown up in a good Christian home and have good discipleship, they have to make that decision for themselves. The Bible says in John 1.13, it says in 12, that as many as believed him, received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. The next verse says, which were born, not of blood, not because your parents are believers, nor the will of the flesh, nor from other people. Somebody else can't put you in, another priest or pastor. We're born of God. That's a personal decision you have to make. Second, that the kingdom, the value of the kingdom is priceless. Peter said, we're not purchased with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by that which is most precious, the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, even though we could never purchase it, the Bible says, come without money. We know whatever we give up isn't worth anything, but it's the gospel's worth whatever it costs us to come to Christ. The kingdom's not naturally visible. That's how other people, you come to Christ and your whole life has changed and they don't understand it. Don't be upset at them, they can't see it. The Lord has to show you the treasure. He's the one that points out why that pearl is so beautiful and so valuable. The kingdom is the source of true joy. It isn't like, well, okay, I guess I gotta do this. To find Christ is to find the source of joy. Jesus told his disciples, 
I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. There's no joy like the joy of knowing Jesus. Even in the trials, that peace that passes understanding and the comfort of knowing the king is walking right there with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil. No, no two stories are alike. That's why we like hearing stories. Everybody comes to Christ by submitting to him, but how God reached us at the top, at the bottom, that's God's story, and we love those stories. The kingdom is made personal by a transaction, and sometimes we have a hard time with that, just thinking, well, you know, grace is full. Only Christ's payment purchases salvation, but the true believer will also be willing to pay whatever cost salvation involves. When will we learn? The gospel's supernatural. It's supernatural. What God has given us is supernatural. So we can take the burden off about you have to talk somebody into following Christ. Just share the gospel. You've got to get a decision or they might go to hell. No, that's God's business. Just give them the gospel. You don't have to pressure them. Just get the seed out there. It's supernatural. God will prepare the heart. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 through 10. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Just like when God said let there be light, that's what happens every time a person comes to Christ. It's supernatural. So don't be afraid of their faces or try to become a judge with evil intentions thinking you know who's worthy or who's ready because you don't. You look at the outward appearance, God's the one that looks at the heart. But it goes on to say, and we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Is Jesus really a treasure to you? Is he valuable? Or John MacArthur wrote a, hook, a whole book about ashamed of the gospel. You're kind of ashamed. You don't mind being nice. Maybe people remember you as being a nice guy, but, well, the gospel might offend them. No, no, is he precious or not? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that <coughs> we might be faithful as stewards of your precious truth. Not only the responsibility, but the joy of sharing this great treasure and seeing others come to know you as priceless value also, Lord. Lord, give us boldness in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.